there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. If you love reading, especially fiction, and you wonder what it takes to write a novel, let alone a series of books, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has written five books, his latest published in September 2019. And before that, he'd spent over 40 years as a journalist, 25 of them at CNN. But before I introduce you to John Dedakis, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org, and the sign up box is right there. And while you're there, I want to invite you to check out all the other episodes of Time for Coffee that are organized by career on the homepage. So whether you're interested in marketing and sales or architecture and design or journalism and media, they're all there and you can just click on the box and find the guests who suit your interests. Now, my novel reading Nespresso lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is John Dedakis, novelist, writing coach, and manuscript editor. John has written five books, which run as a series of mystery suspense novels revolving around the character Lark Chadwick, a young college dropout who's trying to figure out what to do with her life. His latest novel in this series is entitled Fake. When John started writing his Lark Chadwick novels, he was still a senior copy editor at CNN, where he was responsible for supervising writing teams, which were working for various network newscasts. John was also the final gatekeeper for the scripts that anchors like Wolf Blitzer and Carol Costello would read, and that foreign correspondents like me, wrote about the stories we were covering. In my case, it was while I was living and working in Japan and China. It was a full-time job, that was for sure. Oh my God, don't even get started on that. By the way, if you want to learn more about how to break into novel writing and journalism, check out the show notes for this episode to see if John's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. John, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated? I'm still caffeinated. You Thank are? You. <laughs> and are you ready to go? I'm good. I'm ready. Yeah, I see you've only got a teeny tiny bit of coffee left in your mug. That, well, it's it's now in my system. Okay, there we go. There <laughs> we go. So I am so excited to have a copy of Fake, a Lark Chadwick mystery in my hands. Thank you. Congratulations. It's a good sleep aid, right? No, it's more, it's much more than that. It's actually, it's beautifully written. I haven't finished it. I've started it and I am looking forward to finishing it. And I am so thrilled for you that you got to finish it. I'm as surprised as you are. Well, I want to say that it is an additional treat, not only to have your book in my hands, but to have you across from me here in my home because 
I want to say at least 99% of the time, John, you and I were like just talking over the phone. Oh, well, you were in China and I was in Atlanta. Yeah. So it's nice to see you face to face. It certainly (laughs) is. And I want to just say a huge thanks for taking the gobbledygook (laughs) that I gave you over the years and turning it into something that didn't completely embarrass me. I don't remember making any changes at all. You were very easy to work with and um, you did fine. Well, (laughs) thank you. But truly, thank you for, for helping me become a better journalist. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Before we get into, John, what you're doing now as a novelist and the five books that you've written, I would love for us to flash back to your time at CNN as a senior copy editor where you worked for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And in particular, get into what a senior copy editor does. In other words, What were your responsibilities? Well, an editor is like a goalie. Only in journalism, it's unlike soccer and hockey, where they see the great saves. As you know, in journalism, the only time the editor is noticed is when a mistake gets through. And usually a mistake is either an error in fact, clunky writing, bias, or the fonts on the screen are misspelled. Any one of those things or all of those things can go wrong. And, you know, you have to, part of the job was just reading, knowing what the news was, knowing what was going on, because you didn't have a whole lot of time to edit a script. And most of the editing, we started before the shows went on. But especially with the Situation Room, the whole concept was happening now. So, you know, we had a rundown, but by design, it was blown up during the show. So more often than not, The pace was incredibly fast, and you had to make quick decisions about, is this in Wolf's voice? Is it accurate? Are there any words missing and all that? So it was fast and uh, intense. We should let our listeners know, for those who aren't familiar with broadcast television, a rundown, and frankly, even in radio, a rundown is just the order in which various stories will air. It's the roadmap. Exactly. Could you give us an example, John, of the kind of bias in writing that you would be looking out for? What would be an example? I mean, I can think of glaring examples, but I'm guessing some of them might have been more subtle. Very subtle. I mean, often it's just the it's the uh, the use of one word over another. I'll give you one example off the top of my head. I don't know if this was an exact script that I got, but it was along the lines of President Obama today finally admitted that there's a problem with the economy. Finally admitted. Maybe he did take a while to come around to making a comment on the economy, but admitted implies some sort of uh, criminal activity. It's so subtle and so nuanced that you just have to be more straight ahead about it. President Obama said today the economy is not what it should be. This comment came after weeks of saying the things were rosy. So a second sentence, also factual, puts it in perspective as opposed to sort of a a more slangy way of saying it that could imply bias. Mm. This point actually only occurred to me about a minute ago. (laughs) As I was preparing for the interview, I didn't think about it in this way. But as you were talking, it occurred to me that because you were copy editing for anchors 
to read, really punctuation doesn't matter as much. It does in the sense of pacing and emphasis, but not in the way that it does when you're reading print. Yes. And for a broadcast script, I mean, broadcast journalism is writing for the ear. The reader or the listener doesn't have the opportunity to go back and go, what did they say again? As you do in in a print story, it has to be understandable the first time. And that means the sentences have to be short and to the point. There need not be too much heavy lifting in there. Uh, One idea per sentence is not a bad idea. An ellipsis is always a good way of telling the anchor pause here or take a breath or whatever. But that's not the way you would punctuate a novel. You know, we would use commas and dashes and things like that. Yeah. And you mentioned being under pressure to get the scripts out. How quickly would you be turning things around? It never felt quick enough. (laughs) I can remember there were a couple of times where I could actually see the teleprompter because of the way the cameras were set up. And fortunately, it was an electronic teleprompter system as opposed to the early days when the scripts were put on a conveyor belt and all of that. That's, That's ancient history. And there were times when I would file the story, the script, and then it would pop up on the prompter. I mean, we're talking a nanosecond before it was supposed to air. That's an extreme example, but that happened usually once a day or a couple of times a day. You would much rather have it where you've got more time to take a breath and, you know, really absorb the story, check things out if you can. So it was, it was fast. What do you think some of the more common mistakes are that new writers make or that less experienced writers make for television? You mentioned that you're writing for someone who's listening rather than reading. What are they doing that they shouldn't be doing? They're using too many words. Some people think that good writing is flowery writing and the more words, the better. I had a journalism professor at the University of Wisconsin who had what he called the fog index. Basically, and it was it was to determine how tight your lead was. It was like word count times number of syllables equals how foggy it is. Foggy meaning indecipherable. So the goal was to have a low fog index. The rookie mistake is to say it in 10 words when you could say it in five. And I'm also thinking, John, that one of the things that I had to learn on the job Not from was me, <laughs> well i'm sure i did learn other things from you but it is not overwriting because it's not radio where it's just audio or silence you have pictures right so what does the addition of video footage or still images have to the way that you are writing for anchors so that they complement those images. Oh, boy. Boy, that's a question I've never been asked before, but it's a really good one because television is show and tell. And so in a sense, the words are less important than the images. So a lot of what a broadcast journalist does is chooses the right images that reinforce whatever it is that's being talked about. And the most powerful part of it is the show and say, or if you're showing something, reinforce it with what you're talking about, as opposed to just wallpaper pictures and then a script that doesn't necessarily relate to what's being shown. So if you have that complementary relationship between the image and what you're saying, that's good. The problem, of course, in broadcast journalism or or television journalism is a camera isn't always everywhere. So there are some stories that aren't necessarily visual. 
And fortunately now there are graphics that reinforce parts of the story that can't be told with images. So um, yeah, it's an added dimension of storytelling. And in novel writing, it's basically taking that um, scene that you see in your head and taking it and putting it onto the page so it's vivid to the reader. Absolutely. So take us into a typical day on the job as a senior copy editor at CNN. First, you get coffee. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Right. And, you know, part of it is just schmoozing. Getting to, you know, talking to your, your colleagues. A lot of it is reading in. I don't think producers ever quite understood that. Producers read in, but they sometimes felt that you were sloughing off if you were reading in your computer. So reading is part of it. It's fundamental. And by that, you mean what? You mean reading the wires, reading the papers, reading what the news is of the day. And then there are usually meetings about what the rundown is going to be, who are we going to be interviewing, what stories are happening, but it's not fixed in stone and that things are fluid. And so you've got to be nimble and flexible and not rigid. And then as the pace picks up, more and more scripts are coming in. You need to know what's what's not there yet and how much time the writer's got to finish it. Sometimes you need to go, you got five minutes. And You're saying that to, to the writer, writer. To the writer. And if the writer is saying, I'm having trouble, I'm not going to make the slot, you let the producer know, drop that. And with it, there was an intercom system so you could talk to the producer in the control room. So it's just then a matter of keeping the copy moving. And um, hopefully you'll be done editing before the show is over. <laughs> it sounds to me, John, like it's akin to being on a roller coaster. Oh, yes. A treadmill. A roller coaster and a treadmill all in one. You know, the day starts off kind of slow, the way that the the cars creep up the track. You know that when you get to the top. I'm having PTSD here. (laughs) (laughs) I've been, I retired six years ago and I I thought I'd, now you're going to give me nightmares. (laughs) Right. But in, in a way, just like a roller coaster is exhilarating, there are so many aspects of being in that kind of environment that are also exhilarating. Well, the exhilaration, what you're talking about is the adrenaline junkiness of it all. And there certainly is that. You know, war correspondents, sometimes they live for the next war, cheating death and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's a cliche, but cliches are cliches because there's some truth in it. And so I think that to a certain extent, broadcast journalism is very similar to that. There's that terror that comes from, can can I survive this day? How close to the edge can we take it? God, I'm glad I'm out of that. <laughs> so, John, <laughs> now that you've said that, why should our young listeners perhaps consider going into this side of journalism, the copy editing side? A couple of reasons. One is, I think if you're behind the scenes, it'll add decades to your career. Because a person who's on camera, a lot of it is they're going to be judged on how they look, whether it's fair or not. And so your longevity is determined by whether Mr. or Ms. Big thinks you're any good, look good, sound good, whatever. And a lot of those superficial aspects of the job aren't relevant for a behind-the-scenes position, which I think actually is more fulfilling journalistically because you don't have to deal with all that superficial stuff. People I know 
And there are some I know who are very good looking who prefer being behind the scenes, but they're being pressured to be in front of the camera. And so there's that, you know, that pressure that a person goes through. And I think this is especially true of young women. I mean, I worked with 25 years of, uh, of women interns, young, mostly young women in their early to mid 20s. And the the thing I find amazing is that they would tell me their stories about their jobs and their careers and their families and their boyfriends. And I would listen to the kinds of things they were up against. And the thing that impressed me is how, you know, really solid these people were. Their heads were screwed on right and they you know, their priorities were, were really solid and good, I think. So I learned a lot just by listening to them. Mm. What are the skills that you think you ended up Honing as a senior copy editor that didn't really jump out at you until you started writing novels mm. that you said, wow, this is really coming in handy. Yes, it's called proofreading the galleys. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm a compulsive editor. So, and the, and one of the things I teach in my writing classes is my encouragement is to write the first draft all the way through and turn off your internal editor, which for me is hard to do because I want to scratch that itch and make it better. But it's important to get it on paper first because when you finish the novel, it's done. It sucks, but it's done. And that psychologically is important because you've worked through, at least preliminarily, a lot of the major problems. I've now come to a compromise where I still have that forward momentum, but I usually stick with a chapter for a couple of days. So I, I, I rough it in and I make sure it's reasonably articulate. And then I move on, as opposed to a lot of the rookie mistakes I come across where a person will write the first chapter, they'll move on the next day to the next chapter. And then by the end of the week, they've looped back to the first chapter. And it blunts your forward momentum and you end up never really quite finishing your novel because you keep futzing with it. And and so futzing is only productive when it's time for futzing. Don't futz prematurely. Well, you are not too much of a futzer, <laughs> I may say, because you started writing your first book while you were still at CNN. So why and how did you make the transition from journalist to novelist? Well, it was it was a slow transition because, as you may know, and unlike what some presidents may tell you, it is a firing offense to make things up. There is no such thing among reputable news organizations as fake news. Good journalists, reputable journalists care more than anything about accuracy. And so that's why it was a difficult transition to go into fiction because you're making it up. When I first started as an editor, it was tedious, fault finding, so I needed a creative outlet. So the creative outlet was to research a biography of a friend of mine who'd been murdered back in southern Georgia a long time ago. So I started to research it. It's journalism, but it's on my terms. But I discovered it was time consuming, it was expensive. I was digging up all kinds of information about the family that they didn't know. They asked me to put the project on hold, which I was glad to do. And I then turned my attention to fiction, but I took a lot of the research that I had and folded it into the first novel. And that was the breakthrough where I found that personal experience is really valuable as 
inspiration and as a tool that you can use. And, you know, if you don't want to give away personal details, you camouflage them, change names, change locales, careers, you know, all kinds of stuff, because the capital T truth can still be told, even though you change the small T granular factoids. So how did you go about preparing to write that first book? I went to writers conferences i learned from people who were who had written novels there was a publication that i read called writers digest it's now a website it's even more helpful than it was back then because it teaches craft it teaches you about the business it teaches you about how to find an agent they now have uh, uh, writing conferences around the country i spoke at uh, one in pasadena california recently on how to write a novel. And so that was a tremendous resource in learning how to write fiction. I taught myself. You taught yourself. Taught myself, but then you get feedback from people who read it and tell you what you still need to work on. So in your case, do you write an outline? Do you flesh out the main characters before you begin all of them? Obviously, Lark is a constant throughout all five of your books, but what else do you do? Well, there's a discussion within the fiction writing community about whether you're a planner or you're a seat of the pantser, and I'm both. But I tend toward planning. I kind of like to know where I'm going, sort of like having a rundown of life or writing or whatever. But what I discovered is there's a certain degree of serendipity that happens when you allow for or didn't plan well enough and I find myself procrastinating when I haven't thought through something better or good enough. But I've found by trial and error that when I actually write, even though I don't know what I'm going to write, the act of writing is like a straw that taps into your subconscious and it stirs it up. And the connection between your subconscious and the page is when you actually start moving your fingers. It is spooky. And it is the best way to get away from writer's block by not trying to get in a straitjacket and going, how perfect can this be? But just tapping into it and getting it out there because it's the rewrite process where things can then get molded into a much more coherent story. And what about your characters? How are they created? Are they done? Is this ahead of time usually, or is it also seat of the pantsing? It's a little of both. I mean, Lark is me to a certain extent if I had a skirt on. The thing I discovered is that emotions aren't gender specific. We all have the same emotions. But in my experience, the women in my life are more articulate about their emotions. They're more willing to express them. They're more nuanced when they express them. So I just find female characters in Lark in particular, an interesting person because I know her, but I'm able to give voice to her in a way that I don't necessarily do as much myself. And so a lot of characters are, in a sense, composites of people that I know or people in my subconscious who pop up when I start to write. So take us into a typical day when you are in the throes of writing one of your novels. And I know that Fake, your latest book, was written in record time. Uh, Well, yes and no, because I started writing Fake when Trump was elected. And 
you kind of live with the facts that you have. And of course, the president that I'd already created for Bullet in the Chamber, which is the book preceding fake, is more like a Justin Trudeau character. So I can't, you know, have a Trump president. But I decided to create a Russian president who's sort of more like Trump, more unpredictable. And so you live with that fact base. And then there's the procrastination mode where you either you have an idea where you're going to go with this, but there are still gaping holes because life hasn't lived out yet. And there was a point in the first draft near the beginning of the story where I, I was hitting a wall. And I finally wrote, Russia does something provocative here. Wrote it in all caps. That broke the logjam. I was able to write some more. And as I was writing, I got the idea of what Russia could do. And it wasn't hacking into an email server. So that then in the rewrite, I was able to fill in what Russia does. And so the record time is sort of a misnomer because this is over the first two years of his presidency or a year and a half. But as I as 2018 came to an end, it was November, and I was realizing 2020 is going to be a big deal. And this book really speaks to the issue of fake news to a certain extent. So it needs to come out in 2019. And I went to my agent and I said, when do you need the book if it's going to come out in 2019? This is November of 2018. She said, I need it in a month. <laughs> and I hadn't finished the first draft yet. So that's when the record time happens. And that's when being under the gun at CNN and, and moving those scripts fast comes into play because I just stepped it up. And then I'm on a deadline. And it's a deadline that I'm not imposing. It's imposed from on high. I can do that. And so I finished the first draft. I knew it sucked. I knew there were weak spots. But I also had people in my life, young women who were the age of Lark, who knew Lark. And so they would read the manuscript as I was also starting to make the changes I knew I needed to make. And then I'd get feedback, beta readers, we call them. And so then I was able to incorporate those changes. And so it went through two more revisions within a month so that I could get it to my agent. And she said, this is the best one. And she said that about the previous one, but she said, oh, this one really is. And of course, I'm going, God, I went so fast. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm a little nervous about this one. So do you have a ritual when it comes to writing? I mean, obviously, last November, you were, I'm sure, getting up super early, maybe not, or maybe staying up late. What is your usual rhythm, John, when it comes to writing? Well, I think that the rhythm was instilled in me when I was working at CNN. Because when I was working overnights, we talked about sleep more than we talked about the news. And the thing I discovered is that I can only get about five hours of protracted sleep. And then I'm up. And, you know, I'd go home from work at seven in the morning and I'd write a little bit and then I'd take a nap and I'd sleep for as long as I could because Cindy was at work, the kids were at school and I'd sleep for only five hours and then I was up again. And so my body was basically bludgeoned into submission. So now I can only sleep maybe five hours at a time. So I'm usually up early because if I stay up late to write, 
that stirs up my my mind too much, and then I can't sleep well. So I do most of my writing in the morning when I'm really working on a book. And I'll write, if I can get at least an hour in, that's good. If I can get four in, that's wonderful. Anything after four and I've lost my edge. And then I just need to move on to something else. And I Is play, that I, right? Yeah, I play drums. I play jazz drums. There's a lot of time spent marketing. I don't think people realize that. If you Even if you got a book deal at Random House, gone are the days where they're going to finance your cross-country book tour, unless you're John Grisham and you don't need it. So a lot of the skill set you need as a writer is a marketer. And so a lot of time I spend marketing. But the ritual is when it's quiet in the morning, that's when I do my writing. So tell us about fake. Well, fake is a continuation of Bullet in the Chamber, where in Bullet in the Chamber, Lark has a boyfriend who uh, dies. And so fake takes place about six months after that. So she's still grieving. And she is now the White House correspondent for the Associated Press, as she was in Bullet. She has struck up a relationship with the first family because as part of statecraft, it's partly just reaching out to people and schmoozing. And so when her boyfriend dies, he was a White House photographer. So the president and his wife reach out to Lark. She gets to know them. She learns something about the first lady and uh, the first lady takes her into her confidence. And so fake begins when Lark is doing an interview with the first lady who suddenly dies. And that just starts a whole media frenzy that is directed at Lark because she does some initial things that are of questionable integrity. And reasonable people will disagree about this, but she's a controversial figure. And journalism in the post-Trump era is no longer trustworthy. It's fake news. And so she's having to deal with that. She's also having to deal with the whole Me Too situation because she's a very attractive woman in a profession where looks matter. And she's very uncomfortable with her good looks because more often than not, the guys in her life, you know, want to spend time with her, not because she's smart, but because she's good looking. And so she's been dealing with a lot of that stuff. And so fake is that maelstrom that she finds herself in uh, at the center of can I say shitstorm? Of course you can. <laughs> She's in the middle of a media shitstorm, and uh, the book is how she works it out. And what was it about this theme that at this time that drew you to write a book about fate? I didn't want to write a polemic. I'm not trying to make a speech or preach, but I do, and in all my novels, I try to give people a glimpse behind the scenes of what journalism is about. And I think, and maybe this is true in your experience, I know it is in mine, most of the people I know who have very strong negative opinions of journalism have never met a journalist, have no clue what goes on behind the scenes. And so even before fake news became a term, when Nixon was president, I mean, Spiro Agnew basically said fake news, only he said it more elegantly. Reporters are the nattering nabobs of negativism or the effete core of impudent snobs. We've come a long way since then, but the distrust in the news media has not changed. In fact, 
I was going to be a, a lawyer like my dad and go into politics. And when I joined, when I became a journalist instead, because I was fed up with Watergate and Vietnam, as far as my parents were concerned, I joined the dark side because they were Nixon Republicans and reporters had run Nixon out of the White House. So the thing that my mom told me that I, I really tried to live by, she said, if in your reporting, I hear an opinion, even if I agree with it, you failed. Just give me the facts and let me make up my own mind. And so that was what guided me. That guided me through my whole career. And it's basically what I want people to understand about journalism, that there's so much care that's taken to get the story right. And it's gotten so much more difficult because of social media. Now, if you've got a Twitter account and 700 followers, you're a journalist. You just don't have any editorial oversight. And more and more, we talked about broadcast journalism, but it's no different with social media. We read stuff to reinforce our biases and to stir us up emotionally. But what are the facts? What are facts that we can trust? And so that's one of the things I'm trying to work through in all of my novels and especially fake. You mentioned the fact that sometimes these stories stir us up emotionally without giving anything away in terms of the plot twists in your earlier books. You've made no secret of the fact that you have used writing as the way to deal with the loss that you've experienced in your life and the grief that you've experienced. How has writing helped you heal? Oh boy, that's a great question. And the thing that I've learned is that it helped even more than I thought because I didn't write Heal. The first novel I wrote, Fast Track, the very first scene is my sister's suicide. Carbon monoxide poisoning, 1980. And I never really saw a grief counselor during that time. I just, when I started turning to fiction, that was something from my own experience that I was able to use. And so the book isn't about her. It's not about her suicide. But I would say a subplot or a theme does deal with suicide. Moving on to uh, the other books, Bluff, Lark helps her mentor and boss, Lionel Stone, solve the mystery surrounding his daughter's death. And I wrote a scene where, you know, he's identifying the body of his daughter in the morgue. And this was before I'd lost my son and had to identify his body in the morgue. So maybe that was the, the cosmos doing a little foreshadowing. I don't know, but uh, I've read it since and it's, it's pretty powerful and real. Then fast forward to Bullet in the Chamber, that was about my son's accidental heroin overdose. The story is not about him, but I used the collateral damage that happens around grief. I used it as a subplot as part of Lark's life, but much of it was exactly what happened you know, in our situation. Uh, including the fact that he was found in a residential street off of uh, Nebraska or Utah Avenue in, in, in D.C., parked at the curb by a, a neighborhood watch sign. You know, irony of ironies. I was writing the novel as I was going through grief counseling at the Went Center for Loss and Healing in D.C. And of course, my my grief counselor is a woman or was a woman. We we met for about two and a half years. She wanted to know why I write as a woman. Can't imagine why she would want to know that. And the thing I discovered, though, is that, and I didn't discover this until a year after I left grief counseling and was asked to write a speech or give a, a speech at a fundraiser for the grief counseling center. I didn't realize that I'm a deeper, more subconscious reason I write as a woman is to create the kind of woman I wish my sister 
had allowed herself to become. Because Lark Chadwick is not a victim. She doesn't let guys define who she is. She still falls for the bad boy. She still has feet of clay, impulse issues. You know, she's not perfect, but she has a degree of courage and outspokenness that I wish my sister had had and which exists and existed in the lives of the women that I met and knew at CNN and still know in in many cases. So writing, and I feel very strongly about this, the better you know yourself as a person, the better you'll be as a writer because you'll be writing from a place of realism and authenticity. Well, thank you for sharing all of that, John. Thank you. In terms of the healing process, do you think it has been putting the words on paper and then getting reaction from your readers that has helped? Or has it been creating this alternative universe? Ooh, have you ever considered counseling? <laughs> that, that's a very good question. To a certain extent, yes, the writing has been a catharsis. But you know what I've discovered? It has nothing to do with writing. It has everything to do with crying. Because, and this is especially important for guys to hear, women get crying for the most part. It's an emotional safety valve. It lets off steam. It siphons off a lot of that emotional pressure that builds up. Guys are conditioned, and I'm making a general statement, and it's not fair to do, but if you're the kind of person who feels that it's you know weak to cry, that there's something wrong with you if you're crying, that you need to be strong. You know, all of those are admirable things. But what ends up happening is the grief doesn't go away. It festers and it corrodes. It's almost the same as uh, the difference in journalism between cynicism and skepticism. Cynicism corrodes. Skepticism keeps you on your edge because you know people are lying to you. So as far as grief is concerned in writing, I find that crying is really the most important way to heal. One person told me that really makes sense. Go toward the pain. All too often in our society, we're trying to anesthetize the pain through drugs, alcohol, whatever makes you feel good, work, house cleaning, you know, whatever it is that diverts you from it. It doesn't really deal with the grief. It postpones it. And it's still there and it's still festering and it's still going to come out. So I've just found that crying, it's even better than writing. I cry when I write sometimes. Oh my gosh, I can just imagine you must have like five boxes of tissue all around you. Yeah, pretty much. But what an amazing point, John, because you are going and creating these very poignant, painful Mm storylines, you are forcing yourself to face some of the most painful things that have happened to you in your life, and you're not wallpapering over it with other substances. Yeah. And the thing I have discovered, which is sort of to the point you made earlier, the question you asked, is that I've discovered that you don't have to scratch very deeply with anyone to find pain. And the, I mean, suicide and heroin addiction are probably two of the most stigmatized issues in our society. And the saving grace is I'm able to talk about it and I'm able to write about it. And being able to do that, I think, allows other people to realize that they're not alone because it's so easy to allow yourself to get isolated and think no one feels this way. No one has had this experience. People are going to judge me. 
How do you recommend our young listeners, the aspiring writers and authors who are listening to this, find their voice? That's a good question. And I don't think I've answered it this way before, but I'll be more prescriptive than I I like to be because often I find in the manuscripts that I edit that a lot of times people write in third person, which is fine, but it feels clunky. It feels artificial. And I write in first person. It narrows your point of view, but it flows naturally out of me because I journal. And so journal is first person. And my guess is that we're probably all of us more comfortable speaking in first person. So my suggestion is at least for the first draft, start doing it in first person because that's the way you communicate. And if it feels too personal or it's limiting your point of view too much, in the second draft, you can change I to she or you know you can make changes and rework it if necessary. So I think finding your voice is in a sense tapping into the voice you already have and going from there. I know you've taught a seminar entitled from novice to novelist. (laughs) What are the most important things our aspiring novelists need to keep front of mind? I think the most important thing is curiosity. I think you really need to be curious about the world you're in and the people you're around. You know, the more questions you can ask of people, and this is especially good for writers because writers tend to be shy and introverted. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a shy person with extrovert tendencies who has introvert tendencies too. And so what I've discovered about people who are introverts is that it's exhausting they don't get their energy from other people. They feel they've got to be on and you know in control and giving their best stuff. But when you're talking, you're not listening. And the greatest thing an introvert can do is to take the focus off themselves because they don't want it there anyway and start asking questions. Ask your Uber driver. You'll learn in seven minutes, you'll learn all about immigration, for instance. The more curious and more, the more you can follow your curiosity wherever you are, the wider your horizon will be and the more informed your writing will be. Speaking of curiosity, why did you create the character Lark as a young woman who was a college dropout? (laughs) And this is particularly relevant for the Time for Coffee listeners, many of whom are in college right now, others may have dropped out or graduated and are in the working world. Well, that presumes I can remember 15 years back when I was writing it. I I don't know if I, I was thinking, you know, strategically, but I can certainly speak to the angst that a person goes through when they're in college and when they're contemplating getting out, not only because I lived it, but because I've talked to so many people who are in that same boat. And I think that one of the things is often a person is in college because of what their parents want them to do. You know, you're going to be a doctor because you can make a lot of money. You're a lawyer or whatever. And the people I meet who are doing it because they're trying to please their parents are miserable. And if you can find what you're good at and what you what you love that's the standard that you should use. And the the thing I've discovered, and I, I mentioned this, is life doesn't turn out the way you expect. And life is a series of cause and effect. And my intent was to go into law and then politics. 
But for the good of the country, I went in a different direction. And it was because I was confronted during the anti-Vietnam War years with overheated rhetoric from both the left and the right. And I just knew that the spin that I was hearing, they were leaving out facts that undermined their point of view. And so journalism was the great perch to sit on to try to find out, well, what's true? And the thing with my my son, Stephen, he was very talented. You know, he was a cook. He was a comic. He was a, you know, he was a drummer. He was a, he would, you know, bands, you know, bands would play and he'd mix, do the mix. Oh, do the mix. He was a uh, producer? Yeah, sort of a producer. He had that tendency. He could, he was interested in maybe being a history teacher. He was, I think, vexed because he felt that he had to make a decision and then that he was stuck going in that direction in one of those yeah and i th- i think interests pe- right and i think if you're a person with a lot of different interests follow those interests nurture those interests and often you'll find what you go into is in a sense what the first opportunity is it's almost by necessity but life is lived we talked about a treadmill. We talked about a roller coaster. The point is that it, there's forward moment motion going on here, and you can't steer a car that's not moving. So move, go in a certain direction, and you can always turn to the left or the right. That is such a great line and image. And I have to say, in my own life, I think there has been so much serendipity. And that's the thing that our young listeners need to really take in, the fact that they cannot predict what is going to happen in their life, both good and not so good. And even the not so good stuff is grist for the mill and it will bring you to a better place if you allow yourself to feel the pain. One of the things that I think is a common experience in living life is fear because people can be afraid of serendipity you know, the unexpected, kind of want to be able to control things. And I get that. If you think about it, fear is life's pivot point. We use fear to count the cost. Caution is fear. There's cowardice. We know what we should do, but we don't do it. That's fearful inaction. But going forward doesn't necessarily mean the absence of fear. It means harnessing it. The guys who stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, were they afraid? They were terrified. They went forward anyway. That's the definition of courage, fear in action. So my suggestion is recognize that there's some fear here. Recognize what it is, what you're afraid of. Chances are it'll probably happen. You'll be judged. You'll be laughed at. You'll be whatever. You won't be perfect. All of the things you fear will probably happen, but it's not necessarily as bad as you think. So go forward anyway, because going forward gives you the confidence to do it again. Because once you've done something that you're afraid of and the world didn't blow up, then you've got the confidence to do that same thing again, because now you have that knowledge experience that it wasn't so bad. And then you go forward. Journalism, day-to-day fear. It's fear of the unknown. You're, you know, they're sending you to cover stuff you don't know anything about. And then you're supposed to come back and sound intelligent, but then ask questions in the field to learn. And there's fear of asking questions. You know, <laughs> there's so much, there's so much. But the only thing I would add to that wonderful discourse that you just had there, John, is that yes, some of the stuff that you thought was going to be bad and was the reason for feeling fear may happen. But in fact, what will surprise you is you will also find incredible satisfaction 
and joy and excitement when you push yourself out of your comfort zone and go towards the fear. Totally. And often it takes someone else to push you out of your comfort zone or a circumstance to push you out of it. So let's talk about one of those, John. I'd like to pivot now to the final time for coffee questions that I ask all of my guests. And this one in particular is about a time in your professional life when you struggled, when you faced a big challenge. In my case, one of them was when I was fired from CNN when I was 43 years old. So what was that experience in which you face planted? How did you pick yourself up? And what was the lesson that you learned in the process? Whoa. There's one quick one. I was a reporter at the NBC affiliate in Madison, Wisconsin. And part of the job was reporting, but also shooting. And so it was- Filming. Film. It was film back then. And so there was a, the police radio said there'd been a shooting out in the county. Well, this was run and gun journalism. You know, you want to be first, you want to get it on. And so I got in the car and I was the reporter and the photographer, got on the scene. Uh, the body had already been taken away and apparently was still alive, but I got a shot of the blood stain, you know, and then I hot footed it to the university hospital. I was really going on adrenaline. And so I saw the ambulance there, the doors were open, the flights were still flashing, got a shot of that, it's show and tell. And then I barged into the emergency room and it turns out it was a suicide. So that was a face plant of major epic proportions. How freaking stupid was that? Just because of the, the forward momentum, the adrenaline of getting the story and getting all of the elements and the human drama. Well, that was a major rookie mistake. I learned that one the hard way, but I didn't get fired. I just learned. You know, they get said, got the hell out of here. And I got the hell out of it. Moving on. I'd been at CNN for several years. It was in Atlanta. I was editing early morning shows and I would come in in the middle of the night and the assistant to my supervisor would hand me a sheaf of scripts that my boss had gone over from the the day before the newscast, highlighting all of the mistakes that got on the air, the things that I didn't catch. Well, I'm wondering, is this, you know, a paper trail? Am Am I, are they getting ready to, you know, send me out the door? So I decided to edit defensively. So every story I had, if I had to make a change, I'd dupe it into a file, make the changes, dupe the change in the file so that when the next morning I was presented with a stack of papers, maybe an inch high, I'd give them a two foot tall stack of the stuff that I caught to kind of put it in perspective. I have no idea why I was being treated that way other than the boss I worked for was really good. She was incredibly attentive to detail and she thought that she was doing me a favor by pointing out my mistakes. <sighs> Fine. I can learn from my mistakes, but I'm also responsive to encouragement. And did I do anything right today? And I think that's something that bosses miss out on is the encouragement side of it, because often I'm bringing in fear again, because often supervisors, especially in one career or another, they become supervisors, not because they're good managers, but because they're good at whatever it is, the business that they're doing. So they don't know how to manage people. Therefore, they're afraid of losing their job. Therefore, if you screw up, you're threatening their job. So it's a really sick 
twisted situation. And I think that's what I was in. I was in a situation where I think she was afraid of losing her job, wanted to make sure everything was perfect, and was just ruining my morale in the process. Long story short, someone went to HR on her, not me, and she was at risk of losing her job. She did a major apology tour among the people who she felt she wronged. I was one of them. She apologized. I accepted it. We actually became friends. But that was... Uh, an awful, awful experience to be editing on the defensive in a situation where you're not being encouraged in a job that is a performance-oriented job. So if all you're hearing is how you suck, then that just saps your self-esteem. How long did that go on? Too long. I'd say it felt like forever. So what is the lesson that you have taken away from, from those experiences? One lesson is you need people skills and you need to treat people as if you, as the way you want to be treated. So that means you want to be corrected. You want to get better as a, whatever it is you do, but you also want encouragement. You need to be reinforced. And so the takeaway was in a sense, I'm not going to manage the way I was managed for the most part. I had some really good bosses, but they were the ones who encouraged me and pointed out the stuff I was doing well. So that when they pointed out stuff I wasn't doing so well, I was more likely to listen. Do you think if you had, and maybe you did this, approached your supervisor and said, are you sending me a message? I'm feeling discouraged because the only feedback I'm getting from you is negative. Do you see other things that I'm doing well? I really appreciate this feedback because it's continuing to help me up my game. I'm just curious. I Where were you when I needed you? <laughs> I'm saying this, John, because I also would hunker down when I got feedback that was negative rather than sitting down with the supervisor and saying, I'm kind of curious and just opening a channel of communication because oftentimes we're wrong. Boy, I think that's really good advice. And I really wish I followed it because I didn't think that the evaluation process was particularly fair either. And so it was a toxic brew of mistrust. And so I think that you're scenario is a very wise one and hard to do when you're in the middle of it. And I mean, I was in my 40s, I think at that point too. So you would think, you know, I'd be a grown up and be able to ask that brave question. We're back in fear and hunkering down. Boy, is that a good term. I did hunker down. I think what helped is I had a wife who was very understanding and who I could talk to. I journaled. That got me through it too. This is more for our young listeners. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> Just don't, so they don't benefit. do it our way. <laughs> exactly. They can benefit from our mistakes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really well said. Final time for coffee question, John. If you could go back to college, back to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and do it all over again based on the wisdom you have now, mm. what advice would you give yourself? It would be chill, get to know yourself, go forward in spite of your fears, do what you're good at, do what you love, and then just keep moving. And if you need to make a left turn or a right turn, go for it. John's latest book is Fake, A Lark Chadwick Mystery. 
John, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope Fake becomes a bestseller. And I hope you go on to write many, many more books in this wonderful series. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.